have to be here in your house to worship you. God, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that you would work mightily in us and amongst us. God, that you would just help us to not only hear your word, but seek to understand and apply it to our lives. God, I pray that if there's anything here that I have prepared that is not from you, that you would take those words from me. God, that instead you would replace them with words that are clearly from you. For God, we gather here together wanting to hear your voice. God, we praise you for the opportunity to lift up your Son, Jesus Christ, and and the glorious gospel. And God, pray that you would just work um, to encourage us through it. Pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world today, that they too would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our sermon series titled, Rooted in the Truth, based on the book of 2 Peter. And as we've worked our way through this book, only a couple of weeks so far, we've talked about the fact that this book was written by the Apostle Peter just before his death. So it was a means of him sharing kind of his final wishes with those whom he loved. And Peter wants his readers to know that the gospel that they are to cling to is the gospel that is rooted in truth. And that any other supposed gospel is not really good news at all. In the first four verses of the book, Peter laid a solid foundation by pointing us back to the gospel. He reminded us of the provision of the gospel. That God has given us the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. He reminded us of the power of the gospel. That Christ's divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And he reminded us of the promises of the gospel, that God has granted us precious and magnificent promises, he said, not only in this life, but also an ultimate and final rescue from sin as we spend eternity with him in heaven. And then last week in verses 5 through 11, Peter showed us the effect that the gospel should have on the life of a believer. He reminded us that growing in godliness is the necessary evidence of genuine faith. That if you have genuine faith, you will grow in godliness. And therefore, assurance that one's faith is genuine comes to those who grow in godliness. In other words, godliness indicates and assures you that you are truly trusting in the provision, the power, and the promises of the gospel. So last week's focus was on the genuineness of one's faith. And as we look at today's text, Peter's going to focus more on the genuineness of the good news, the genuineness of the gospel that is being proclaimed. So in these next few verses, we're going to see uh, how the gospel is true because it's rooted in history and it's rooted in Scripture. So without further delay, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 12. 2 Peter 1, 12. Therefore... I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind." For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Dale had asked me last week, he said, are you going to preach verses 16 through 18 or are you going to try to finish up the whole chapter? And I said, I'm preaching just verses 16 through 18. And then I, I kind of changed that as we, I started into the week and I thought, no, I really want to finish up the chapter. There's plenty to talk about in verses 16 through 18, but I really want to spend more time getting into, um, or excuse me, 12 through 15, but I really want to spend more time talking about verses 16 through 21. So, We're going to look at verses 12 through 15, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses uh, 16 through 21. Uh, I want you to notice three things, though, from verses 12 through 15. First of all, number one, believers are forgetful and need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. Peter says believers are forgetful and you need to you need to constantly be reminded of the gospel. In verse 12, he says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Peter understood that believers live in a world full of distractions. And that if they're going to grow in the gospel, they need to always be reminded of it. And I believe wholeheartedly that is what God has called me to do here at Harmony Bible Church. Preach the gospel. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is what I am called to do here is to preach the gospel. And it's not because you don't know it. God didn't say, go to Harmony Bible Church to these people who think they're believers who have never heard the gospel and share the gospel with them. He said, no, go to Harmony Bible Church to these people who are believers and preach the gospel. And I say that because I believe that the central call of any pastor is to remind the congregation of the gospel so that they may grow. Because we're forgetful. And I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Up. It's a Disney movie. And there's a dog in the movie who every time, he constantly gets distracted and says, Squirrel, right? Squirrel. Every t- just constantly. He's, and that's kind of what our dog does. If you say squirrel, our dog actually like, starts looking around for a squirrel. And I think that's how we are as believers. We get constantly distracted. We're looking at things that are going on in our lives and we forget the gospel. So we need to be reminded of it. Number two, uh, reminding believers of the gospel is a means of stirring them up, Peter says. Peter says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He says, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. The word stir means to arouse or to change in state. And Peter knows that sharing the gospel is what brings about genuine change. You know, we can add, as a church, more 
music, different music, new music. We can add new programs. We could open the doors of this church five nights a week. Or I could stand up here and preach sermons and tell you, you know, you should love your spouse more. Uh, You shouldn't gossip. You should pray for your leaders. And, And those things will bring about some change. However, I believe that that change is short lived. That what really needs to happen is that we need to see our lives lived through the lens of the gospel, like Peter did in his first entire book. And, and when we do that, that's when real change begins to take place. I've seen it in my own life, where when the gospel, when I look at the gospel and I dwell on the gospel, and I remember the gospel daily, that my life begins to change because there's power in the gospel. That's why, by the grace of God, I, like Peter, intend to stir you up by way of reminder. As long as God gives me an opportunity to speak from this pulpit, I intend to stir you up by reminding you of the gospel. And number three, reminding believers of the gospel prepares them for the future. I believe wholeheartedly that reminding you of the gospel prepares you. Peter says, and I will also be diligent that any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. See, Peter wants his readers to be able to bring the gospel to mind. And he wants them to be able to do so during hardship and suffering, during times of great rejoicing, at all time, at any time. Bring the gospel to mind. See, Peter knows that the gospel is a great motivator. And therefore, he wants it to be in the forefront of our thinking. One of the things we talked about in Sunday school was how do we abide in the vine? How do we, from John 15, how do we live in such a way that we're always abiding in Christ? And I would say we need to constantly remember the Gospel. That we put the Gospel in front of us. We remember the Gospel and its promises. And that we direct our thoughts. We screen everything through the Gospel. And let it motivate us to live a godly life. That's why I always say we need to live in light of the Gospel. We need to let the Gospel point us in the right direction as we seek out its promises. And these verses, 12-15, through are classic Apostle Peter verses. I hope you see the connection between what he's saying here and what he's been saying all along. Peter's pointed us once again to the provision, the power, and the promises of the Gospel. Peter says, believers are forgetful. And they need to be reminded of the gospel. They need to remember the provision of the gospel. Peter says, believers of the gospel, reminding believers of the gospel is a means of stirring them up, reminding them of the power of the gospel. And Peter says, reminding believers of the gospel prepares them for the future. It points them toward the promises that they have as believers. So that's all by way of introduction through verses 12 through 15. Let's now move on to the main part of our text and look at the first point in our sermon outline. The first point is, the gospel is rooted in history. The gospel is rooted in history. Look at uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18 with me. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance 
as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. First, Peter wants his readers to know that the gospel that he has been presenting is not some fairy tale. It's not something that he has dreamt up. It is not a fanciful story, but it is true. And Peter knows that it's true because he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. He says, I know this to be true because I saw it with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. That's why he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses. And then he goes on and says, we ourselves heard. And he goes on and then says, we were with him on that mountain. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Himself being the very cornerstone. Why? Because the true gospel is rooted in historical events seen, experienced, and told by the apostles. They walked with Christ. They lived with Christ. And the, the gospel is built on that foundation of them first telling us of those events. But Peter, he wants his readers and us ultimately to know that not only was Christ's first coming, his incarnation, a historical fact, but that his second coming, his return, is also rooted in history. When Peter says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about the second coming. In fact, in verse 16, the terms dynamis, Right? And parousia, coming, do not designate two different things, right? And instead, they designate one thing. They, they designate the powerful coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying the power and the coming, but we, we translate it, we say the power and coming of Jesus Christ, but he's actually saying the powerful coming of Jesus Christ. And it's a clear reference to the second coming, to his return. It's the very same word that Peter uses later on in 2 Peter 3, 4, when he says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come saying, where is the promise of His coming? That mockers will come and they'll say, you say Jesus is coming back, but we don't see it because time marches on. And and they were saying this 2,000 years ago. People were saying, nothing's changed. Everything is the same day after day. And you Christians keep saying Jesus is coming back. And you know what's crazy? What seems crazy to them? Believers today are still saying Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And it's going to be any time now. And we were saying that 2,000 years ago. But we know it to be true because it's rooted in history. In fact... um, this word parousia is, is ex- used exclusively, this word coming, is used exclusively in reference to His second coming in the New Testament. And so it's important for us to understand that this idea of Christ's return and the true gospel are inseparable. Every statement in every Christian church or organization should speak of the personal return of Christ. Every statement of belief because the gospel is not just that Christ lived a sinless life and died on, our sin, on, on the cross for our sins. 
but that He also was resurrected on the third day. He defeated death. And even more, He's coming back to rescue us. That's why Jesus says in, in John 14, 1-3, He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, we need to believe and and trust in the promise that Christ is indeed coming back. And Peter is saying that not only was he an eyewitness of Christ's ministry, because we believe that the gospel saw Christ, that they walked with Christ, and there's more historical evidence for the person of Jesus Christ than there are many people, most people in history. We have as much historical evidence that a man named Jesus Christ came, walked the earth, did the things that this Bible says that he did. We have as much evidence for that as we have that Abraham Lincoln was one of our presidents. We have tons of evidence. We almost have too much evidence if there was such a thing. It's almost too clean and too neat when you talk about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Peter's saying, though, we didn't just witness his ministry. We didn't just walk with him and see him perform these miracles. We witnessed a foreshadowing of Christ's return when we were on that holy mountain. That's what Peter's talking about here. He says, James, and he doesn't say James and John and I, but he says, we, when we were on that holy mountain, we saw something. We witnessed his majesty. This event is known as the Transfiguration. And it's described in in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But let's look at Mark 9, verses 1 through 7, to see exactly what Peter's talking about. Mark 9, verses 1 through 7. And Mark 9 says this, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, the author of our text today, and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared with them, along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For they did not know what to answer. Just like Peter, he opens his mouth before he knows even what to say. I relate to Peter a lot sometimes. He just opens his mouth and it says, he said this because he didn't really know what to say. For they, they became terrified. Then a cloud formed and overshadowing them. This cloud, by the way, is a clear evidence, clear picture of God's Shekinah glory. That the cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness, this is a picture of that, that this cloud formed. And they would have recognized this. They're already terrified. Then a cloud forms. 
And a voice comes out of the cloud and it says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. It's an amazing testimony of this experience. And if you look particularly at verse 1, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus says, there are some people who are here, who are standing here with me, who will see the kingdom of God coming with power before they die. And we clearly, clearly this relates to the transfiguration. For when you read on, it says six days later, this very thing happened. They saw a foreshadowing, a preview of the coming of glory. And they got to see Christ in all His majesty as He will look to all of us when He returns. See, Peter's pointing to the fact that the transfiguration was a preview of the glory of Christ and His second coming. Peter's saying he knows that Christ is coming back in glory because he saw a glimpse of that glory. In fact, Peter and the other apostles were so convinced So convinced that they were willing to die for Christ. Peter says, some will say, you know what? He's not coming back. The people say, you Christians, you've waited long enough. He's not coming back. And Peter, he didn't care. He was willing to die. Jesus had previously told Peter how he was going to die. If you were to look at John 21, verses 18 through 19, Jesus actually says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger... You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. See, Jesus says to Peter, he says, you used to do what you wanted to do. You were free and you could go anywhere you wanted, but there's coming a day when people will take you where you do not want to go and they're going to stretch out your hands. And John says, he said this to Peter to tell him what kind of death he was going to die. He's telling Peter, Peter, you're going to be crucified. You, Peter, are going to be crucified because of me. And in 2 Peter 1.14, the verse we just finished reading a little while ago, Peter just finished saying that the Lord made it clear to him that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling was imminent. Peter says this This body that I have, the laying aside of it, is very near because the Lord made it clear to me. What an awesome, awesome testimony. He doesn't say, the Lord's made it clear that I'm going to die soon. He says, this this shell, this thing that I'm carrying around with me, I'm going to lay it aside pretty soon because that's what God said. And that's the reality of the life of a believer. That though our body dies, we just lay it aside, we continue on. Peter says, I know that my death is very near. So Peter not only knows how he's going to die, but he knows when. He knows it's very soon. And church church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. That Peter said, I don't want to die the same way as Jesus. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. 
So they crucified him upside down. And that's tradition. Whether or not that is true, we know one thing, that Peter remains strong in his faith. And Peter remains strong, not because the Gospel was a good bedtime story, but because he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was true because he was an eyewitness. Now let's move on to the second point in our sermon outline. The first point is the Gospel is rooted in history. The second point is the Gospel is rooted in Scripture. Peter goes on to say in verses 19-21, through 21, he says this, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But instead, men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Verse 19 is absolutely amazing. Absolutely incredible what Peter is saying here. And I think we miss just how amazing it is when we read it in the New American Standard Version or or the New New International Version or many of our modern day translations. And if you know me well, you know I am not a King James only person. You know that I believe that we need to utilize the, the translations that we have And we have great reason to use some of our modern translations. But I think the King James Version leads us to understand this verse a little bit better. The New American Standard says, so, and the so is added, that's why it's in italics. So, it's added for clarity. We have the prophetic word made more sure. And this leads commentators some of them anyway, to argue that Peter's actually saying that his eyewitness testimony, the fact that he saw Christ and His majesty on that mountain, validates, makes more sure the prophecies of Scripture. So in other words, he's saying, some commentators say, because Peter actually witnessed this event on the mountain, it proves, it makes Scripture more sure. That we know because of that that we can believe Scripture. The King James Version actually makes it a little bit more clear and says this, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. See the difference? We also have a more sure word of prophecy. The term word of prophecy refers to all of the Old Testament and New Testament Scriptures. That this word of prophecy was a phrase used to refer to the Old Testament and to the Scriptures. And that Peter, later on in this very letter, actually calls Paul's writings Scripture, which is amazing. That Peter says, the writings of Paul are Scripture. So Peter's saying that in addition to his eyewitness testimony, yes, we have Peter's eyewitness testimony, but we also, we have Scripture. And Scripture is more sure than the eyewitness testimony. Peter's saying that as much as his being an eyewitness of Christ's ministry and the transfiguration gave proof to the Gospel, as much as that brings evidence and proof of the Gospel, the Scriptures do even more. That's why I say this verse is amazing. That as much as Peter, standing on that mountain, seeing the glory of Christ, gives proof to the truth of the Gospel, 
Peter says, the Bible, the Scriptures, prove it even more. See, you and I, we weren't on that mountain with Peter. We weren't eyewitnesses. We didn't get to stand on that mountain and see Christ's face begin to glow and His face turn white. His clothes begin to, begin to turn white and His face begin to glow. We didn't see that happening. And certainly we've seen Christ in our lives. I pray that every one of you can look back and say, I've seen Christ's work in my life. And I've seen His majesty by the way He's transforming and growing me. We gave testimony to it in Sunday school today. God is so good to me, somebody said. Amen. So we see a picture. We see pieces. We see, we see His majesty. But Peter says, even more than that, we have His Word. Because we weren't on that mountain like Peter. Because though we didn't get to see Moses and Elijah, God has graciously, graciously given us His Word. He's given us this. He's given us what Peter says is even greater proof of the truth of the Gospel. As Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as, as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have the more sure Word. We have more than the testimony of the apostles. We have the living and active Word of God. And in light of that truth, Peter gives us two instructions that we should follow. First, Peter wants us to properly heed the Bible. Properly heed the Scriptures. Peter says this, You would do well to pay attention to the Word of God like a lamp shining in a dark place until Christ returns. That's the Jason Pauly paraphrase of verse 19. He says, you would do well to pay attention to the Word of God like a lamp shining in a dark place until Christ comes back. See, the idea of God's Word being shining, shining like a lamp in a dark place is not new to Peter. The psalmist in Psalm 119, hundreds of years earlier, said, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This idea is laced throughout Scripture because the world around us is a dark place. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Peter says, You do well to pay attention to the light. You do well to do what it says. Let it not just show you the direction you should go. And if there's nothing else you take away from this, that's the point. Don't just let it show you the direction you should go. Instead, actually follow the path that is lit by God's Word. Become what James 1.22 calls a doer of the Word. James 1.22 uh, 122 through 25 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, 
This man is blessed in what he does. Become a doer of the word. So while the first instruction regarding the word was to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place, the second instruction is to properly interpret it. Peter says, make sure you pay attention to the word of God like a lamp that's shining in a dark place. And now this next instruction is properly interpret the word of God. Peter knows that if we are going to become doers of the word, we need to have a firm grasp of what scripture actually says. Look at 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 with me. It says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And the point of these verses is that you can't just assign whatever meaning you want to to Scripture. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone refer to a Scripture, to a verse of the Bible, and say, well, what this means to me is... Or, they'll say, well, that may be the way you interpret the Word, or that may be the way you interpret that verse, but what... It means to me, and Peter's point is that God's word is not just a matter of your own interpretation. And I don't want to go so far as to say it doesn't matter what it means to you because, yes, we apply it to our lives. And I pray that when I hear that, that what the person means is the way I apply this teaching to my life is. But sometimes we say what this verse means to me is. The whole idea is that every part of God's Word has an intended meaning. Because it wasn't written by act of human will. So we can't just will what we want it to mean. We can't just say, well, I want this verse to mean such and such, so therefore, I've decided that's what it means to me. No. Instead, men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. So the question is, what did God mean when He said it? And there are times when... My wife will say something to me, right? And I hear something completely different than what she said to me. And, I, and I'll, I'll run with it. And it doesn't matter what I, what I think she, she meant. What matters is what she meant by it. What did she mean? And that's what I need to get to the bottom of. We can argue and fight and war for days over what I thought she said. What really matters is, all right, what did you mean by this? What was the intended meaning? And we need to ask, what did God mean when He said it? When He wrote this, what did God mean? In other words, there's a right meaning and a wrong meaning. And the right meaning comes from the author, not the reader. And there's a problem that's happening in the church in in 2 Peter. It's beginning to happen. And Peter says, whoa, we need to be careful. Remember the Gospel. The Gospel is rooted in history. The gospel that was built on the foundation of the apostles who saw this thing. Not only that, we have the prophetic word. We have the scriptures, which are even more clear and testify to the truth of the gospel. Therefore, we need to make sure that any gospel we hear fits within the words of scripture and God's intended meaning. Because I'm telling you, there's dangerous stuff out there, folks. You get your Christian book distributors catalog in the mail and we get... 
I don't know, 50 of them a week, it seems like. They're always sending us these catalogs. And there's some great stuff in there. And you know what? There's some trash. Some real trash. Because everybody who assigns the name Christian to themselves suddenly wants to write a book. And the meaning of Scripture, there is an intended meaning that comes from God. And we need to be careful to get that meaning from God. And then once we understand what was God saying, then we say, how then does that apply to my life? Jesus warned against searching the Scriptures, but not understanding their meaning. He did so in John five thirty nine. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures looking for eternal life. You need to understand that what the Bible is about is it's about me. The Bible is about Jesus. And I can't say this long enough or loud enough or often enough. That the gospel is not John 3.16. The gospel is this. This is the good news of God in its entirety. This is about the gospel. The Genesis 4.18, which I have no idea what it says, points to the gospel. The Revelation 2.13 points to the gospel. It's about the gospel of Jesus. And instead we say, the gospel is John 3.16 and all this other stuff is this other teaching. No, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, the Scriptures, and at that time, that was the Old Testament, for the New Testament hadn't been written. He says, the Scriptures, they testify about me. They point to me. Because God's Word is about Jesus and ultimately points us to the Gospel. A life that is illuminated by God's Word will be a life that is shaped by the Gospel. That if if we are letting God's Word illuminate our path, We are letting God's Word shape our lives through the Gospel. See, the Bible is more than a list of do's and don'ts. It's more than a book of rules. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. So when you open it, my encouragement to you is look for Jesus. Look for the Gospel on every page. Remember the the provision of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, and the promises of the Gospel. And as we talked in Sunday school about abiding in the Word, abiding in Christ, how do we do that? I would say you do that very thing. You say, all right, how do I remember daily the provision of the Gospel? What Christ did for me. How do I remember the power of the Gospel? How He's going to carry me today? And how do I remember the promises of the Gospel? And hang them in front of me. Look, Place them in front of me. And march toward those promises daily. We need to hold fast to those promises. And then when we do that, let it change you. Let the Gospel shape the way you think about your relationships. Let the Gospel shape the way you think about your workplace, or retirement, or money, or sex. Let the Gospel change the way you care for your physical body. Let the Gospel shape the way you you diet, the way you exercise. Let the Gospel shape your entire life. For you would do well to pay attention to the Word of God, Peter says, like a lamp shining in a dark place. Understanding its meaning and applying it to your life. Understanding what God has been speaking to us through the Scriptures and doing so until Christ returns. So in closing, Peter wants us to remind ourselves and each other of the truth of the Gospel. 
Peter wants us to remind ourselves and others of the truth of the gospel. And I'd encourage you to do that as a church this week. Call up your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and remind them of the gospel. And say, you know, hey, I've got something to tell you. And just read John 3.16. To say, isn't it amazing what Christ has done for us? Isn't it amazing how He's working in us now? He didn't just die on the cross, but He's working in us now. And isn't it amazing that He's coming back to rescue us? Herald that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage them with that. And then go and take it to your your neighbors in the public square and and, in your workplace. Share with them the truth of the Gospel. Because the Gospel is rooted in history. The Gospel is rooted in history. Just as a review, we remember His first coming, the provision and the power. We look forward to His second coming, the promises. And then the Gospel is rooted in Scripture. Pay attention to the Word. Follow the path that it illuminates. And properly interpret it. Work hard at growing and understanding the Word. Study to show thyself approved. We will never do this. We will never do this if we don't open this book. I read a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said, most Christians have enough dust on the top of their Bibles that you could, you could write with your finger, damnation, in the dust on the cover of their Bible. That's sad. And yet, I believe it's probably true. Most people who call themselves Christian. And I would just encourage you, Root yourself in the Scripture. Remember that the Gospel is rooted in Scripture. Pay attention to it. Follow the path that it illuminates. Be a student of the Word. Work hard. Claiming that promise, that promise that He's coming back. Letting that be what motivates you and drives you forward in your daily life. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. God, I just pray and ask that You'd be with us now. Help us to be people who are not only hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. God, may we be eager to remember the truth of the Gospel. May we be eager to just remember that Your Gospel is rooted in history. Not only because of what Christ has done for us, but also because of that glimpse that Peter saw of Your glory, of Christ's majesty and His coming to rescue us. But also that we have Your Word even more sure. More sure than that. We have Your Word and we would do well to pay attention to it. We would do well to follow it and to understand that Scripture was written by You and therefore our interpretation can't be an act of our will. But instead, we must look to You. God, be with us each day as we seek to live out the Gospel in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.